Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven Drool, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s camera. In this episode, I speak with Kim Bingham of Montreal, Quebec's Mud Girl and me, Mama Morgenthaler. Now, according to Wikipedia, the Morgenthaler story starts in 1988. Um, is that accurate? And were you there from the very beginning? For me, Mom and Morgenthaler, yes, I was. Uh, and it was in 1988 that we started. Uh, we started out in a uh, school cafeteria. And we were a group of friends. Uh, we, hang out, we hung out at, uh, this is in college, and in Montreal, at Marianopolis College. And uh, most of us were going to that school. Uh, most of the people that ended up in the original lineup of the band and um, we we called it the ledge, the part in the cafeteria we, we'd hang out. And so like at any time of the day, you'd go by the ledge and somebody, Gus would be there or Matt would be there or, um, and, you know, whether we're cutting class just to hang out and joke around or being more studious and, you know, uh, that kind of thing at that school it was a pretty strict school. So when I think it was one spring we had the chance to organize a talent show and Matt, who's the bass player in the band, Matt Lipscomb and I, and another student, science student, um, we decided that we would head up the organization of the talent show. And then Matt's like, well, I'm going to get a band together and be in that show. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, obviously we, there's a conflict of interest there, right? You're like organizing the show and then you can put yourself in it. But, um, (laughs) Uh, yeah, the science student did too. And anyway, so the band that Matt decided to put together came out of the ledge, and that was um, what became Imam Morgenthaler. We had two other names we were looking at at the time. It was um, Mr. Dress Up Gets Penis Envy and, <laughs> gosh, what was the other one? It was something like Three Step Jamboree. But me, Mom, and Morgenthaler was so offensive to the students that when we asked them what they thought of the three names, we thought we got to go with that one. So, <laughs> uh, so that's where that started. And then we, so we had our talent show. We were the headline act. Well, headline act. We were at the end of the whole thing. And it was at McGill University uh, Ballroom, which is the Shatner Ballroom. And it was packed. We had pizza delivered on stage, just like the antics started right at the very beginning of the of the whole thing of, of the from the very sh- first show. We were we were up to always up to something and we didn't expect it to go over as big as it did. But it like everyone loved our performance and they're like, you got to play again. When's the next gig? We're like We don't have one. <laughs> so so from there on, we just decided that we'd play and. Anywhere and everywhere in Montreal, and that's what started to happen. And we played. Oh gosh, I think in the first year, uh, we averaged a gig. At some point, we had a period where we averaged a gig every nine days. We were playing somewhere, uh, so we were literally were playing anywhere we could uh, get a gig and uh, any crap hole place in, in Montreal. And there was like a bar owner at the corner of Sherbrooke and. I think it was St. Urban and he took pity on us or something. I don't know. I guess it's like the fact that we were funny and we could bring in kids to drink cheap beer 
And uh, I mean, it was like a little restaurant, really. But we played there a lot. And um, then it moved from there to Station 10. And then it moved from Station 10 to Fofana Electric. And then Fofana Electric became our home away from home. It was our living room for most of uh, most of most of our, our good years in Montreal. Now, for those earlier gigs, uh, were you just doing covers or did you have some originals? What was the set list like? So, well, Matt actually was a burgeoning songwriter at that point and a huge fan of Bob Dylan. And uh, Gus was, uh, Gus and Matt really had this thing going on, this love affair with Bob Dylan and playing those songs on the ledge too. So that was the beginning of the songwriting there. Uh, but we, we did a lot of covers. I mean, from our first show, I, I mean, I was asked to be in the band specifically to sing the selectors on my radio because uh, they needed a girl to sing it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, I'll come and do this one song and then here we are. So <laughs> you get to get in, you don't get out. But uh, yeah, so we did do, we did specials covers, madness covers. Um, and that, that was really where we started. One of the reasons why we also did covers like Racist Friend, which, I mean, to flash forward now, 2020, uh, Morgenthaler's looking at doing something for an anti-racism project in Montreal this fall. So it's still, it's always part of our ethos is, of the band's ethos is anti-racism. We are a multi-ethnic band. There's black and white and brown in the band. And it, at the beginning of those early gigs, we were attracting skinheads to the shows too. And getting bottles thrown at us um, and, you know, that that kind of thing. So that's why we started playing anti-racism songs like Racist Friend, Matt wrote, Oh Well, you know, I'll Never Get to Know You Well. And that's about, you know, judging someone on the basis of their skin color. So the, those covers became, they, they were important kind of benchmarks for the kind of band that uh, we were and what we stood for. At what point... Um... Do things start kind of happening for you guys where you guys go from a bunch of friends playing gigs to all of a sudden people want to make a record with you? Oh, my gosh. Uh, that, <laughs> OK, I don't know that to work with Morgenthaler is kind of a dare because <laughs> it's <laughs> it's chaos. It's always organized chaos anytime from the very beginning up until now. I mean, I'd still say it's that it's always that. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it was really who could handle the frenzy of the band you know we're the eight-fingered fist right like <laughs> that's that it's 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 just such a crazy energy and um we i mean we were inspired by bands like fishbone and the red hot chili peppers and i think our, our live energy definitely was very similar uh to theirs when it started to happen i mean it was really it, so that first show uh, uh for our first talent show at bagels locks and rock and roll that was the name of the talent show by the way bagels locks and rock and roll very typically Montreal. Uh, uh, it was so yeah. We knew then that we had something, but we didn't quite know what it was. We didn't know what it was. I don't know that we still we still don't really know, but that's okay. That's that's the enigma of it all. The uh, you know the charm and charisma of Morgan Teller. When when we started when we started to pack Station Ten, and then when we got into Fafun, and when we started headlining shows at Fafun, and that was really when things started to change for us because 
Dan Webster was managing Fufun at the time. And um, this was also the time of like Doughboys and, and the Nils and all that scene in Montreal. And I mean, obviously we were not in the same rock scene as the Doughboys or the Nils, but we had that credibility as a underground band and our and counterculture too. So it, I think it's, when when we got into Fufun is really when things started to to gel for us and we were in the it was our right situation for us to to be there and so we started to do like one gig and it would sell out and then it was okay we'll book two nights and then it would sell out and then it was getting on the road especially in Quebec where we had a huge following all over in the province so. Um, and then we got invested to do festivals in Quebec. So it was really, it really became an organic thing, maybe about, I'd say in about 89, like a year and a year after the band really started it, it we, we, we really managed to, to, uh, get a groundswell pretty early on after we started. Now, when you have a, a large number of people in a band, do you have conversations about who gets what percentage, who gets to make the decisions how does that kind of play out okay well right so the way morgenthaler i mean my morgenthaler worked is it was whoever had the great idea it didn't matter how great their idea was it was last person standing in the argument wins that's always <laughs> how it's been and so the arguments would go on for we'd say have a proposal okay well how about if we you know, let's do let's do a show. Well, they want they're offering us this much. No, well, we should take this much. And or well, we have a theme for a show. Well, it should be this theme. No, it should be that theme. Or you know, the song. Oh well, maybe we should do this song arrangement. No, let's try this song arrangement. And then it would literally be like three hours of arguing until everyone got tired and the last person standing on the table, they'd have to be standing on the table in the center of the room saying, I've got it. I'm right. It's me. I've got the idea. It's going to be my idea. It's going to be my idea. And everyone would be worn out and that'd be the idea we'd go with. So that's how Morgan Toller works. And it still kind of works like that to this day. Well, I mean, it says for song splits, we did, most of the time we would divide everything up equally. And then my question is like, did any of us ever make any money in this band? <laughs> like when you split, when you split everything up eight ways, it, at some point we were 11 people, but like, there's no way. So we, of course it was always a labor of love. Right. So. You spoke earlier having themes for gigs and you guys are known for having memorable live shows. I'm curious, is that something that's, um, we guys all sit down and say we're going to make every show an event, or does that just kind of organically develop? Well, so when we started, when we had our very first show at the town night, we ordered pizza from the stage and had it delivered. So there was a <laughs> shtick right there from the very beginning. Of course, the pizza was already backstage, but Gus had the phone, you know, and it was one of those rotary phones with the cord and it's like, oh, we want to order, you know, five extra large pepperoni pizzas. Can you get here in the next 20 minutes for the end of our set? Yeah, sure. So, and then the pizza guy, which is our friend, just up as a pizza guy, shows up with the pizzas uh, on stage, hands them to us, and we literally throw the slices out at the audience. Oh, wow. That is what we did for the first <laughs> show. We thought, and of course, the people at the Shatner Ballroom hated us, but the crowd loved it because they got free pizza. We're like, oh, we got to do that next time. What are we going to do? What's the shtick the next time? And so it was always like there was always a gag. And it was to entertain us as much as it was to entertain the folks. 
Let's see, some good gags. There was the witch doctor voodoo gag where I was a witch doctor and I exercised a demon out of Gus and I had a big (laughs) bone through my head and there was a rubber chicken involved. And we also had the trepanning uh, trepanning, uh, shtick. That one was where uh, we were supposedly drilling a hole into Gus's skull to relieve the pressure in his skull so he could so there it's because it induces hallucination and this is what we were like was the whole psychedelic kind of Shiva space machine um, thing uh, when we put out that album so that was one of the one of the theme shows we did there uh, we also had a barber's chair one show we had a, a barber's chair brought up on the stage and dared someone to have their head shaved so this kid uh, comes up on stage and uh, we and Gus shaves his head and then we our manager got called like a week later saying that he'd been suspended from school because <laughs> he'd gotten his head shaved and that wasn't and his parents weren't cool with it or whatever so he got into a lot of trouble so there was that we had another gig when we played the four I think it was a 450th birthday of Montreal or the 400th, I'm not quite clear on those, so either 400th or 450th birthday of Montreal, and it was a big outdoor festival uh, show in, in, in downtown Montreal, and we decided that we would do something kind of anti-colonial to show that the land had been stolen from the native people of Canada, and so we had the big cross, a big wooden cross that is like at the top of uh, Mount Royal in Montreal, and we sawed it down, and that was kind of our protest thing. So it was kind of being, in, you know, one of these things at the very last minute, are we still going to really saw down the cross? I mean, that's kind of controversial considering being invited by the city to celebrate their birthday, and here we are basically saying, well, yeah, but, you know, this house all started with with uh, land theft. So anyway. And what was the uh, reaction of that happening? Well, I mean, you know, our our crowd – our crowd loved it. Obviously, it was a little bit of a mixed reaction from the organizers. Um, but, I mean, when you go to a Morgenthaler show, you have to expect that there's going to be something like that. I mean, we had one show uh, also where uh, we we the, the curtains were closed. This is at the, when we played the Spectrum in Montreal. The curtains to the to the stage were were closed, so. Uh, and then they opened up very slowly and we're all standing there naked and mm-hmm. Gus says, oh, we're not ready. Sorry. And then the curtains <laughs> close again. Right. And so, you know, then 15 minutes later, we show back up and of course we're fully dressed and do the show. So there's there's just always something to shock or. Yeah.
tristesse Ce n'est pas amusant Toujours itinérante On dirait les mauvais temps On dirait toutes les tristesses Remire un oeil ouvert Ça m'a coûté cher De votre tour à l'air Et si tu me paries Les réponses aux grands défis De l'univers Et même si tu me traites de creuse Tant mieux j'aime la vie en anarchie has that kind of insanity and controlled chaos on stage how do you then transfer that to a record well that was you know that's how that was always that's how, uh, that had always been the challenge for us was when we would get into the studio was how to really translate that live energy that we have onto record because we are so much uh live experience and It, it really felt like kind of harnessing chaos into a bottle, really. That's 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 what it was. And, you know, I like the way I think we're all proud of what we did uh, recording wise. I think that we know that it's not fully representative of what the band's about because you, you know, even now are our, our Facebook fans or whatever are, you know, it's intergenerational where they're like, oh, if you see the Morgan Taller show, you got to check out like when we do our reunions, you know, the, the original fans will bring their kids or their cousins or whatever. So uh, it's always been about the live experience. Yeah, well, we the, the first EP was done in Montreal on a smaller budget, obviously, Clown Heaven and Hell. Uh, and, uh, we had the video for your friend off of that too. Everything was very much shoestring, uh, super, super, super indie at that point. When we got to the point where we were doing Shiva Space Machine, we were working at the studio in Morn Heights, we were working with Glenn Robinson, who had produced Guar. So, you know, and Guar was also like a huge art rock band with a, and also a major live experience, too. So in that way, we thought, you know, maybe he would be, you know, he'd be the right fit for us because he because Guar is also a live experience band that, you know, on record, it's not fully representative of what they're all about. So we thought he would be a good fit for that. And that record turned out uh, pretty good, too. So, yeah. What was the kind of uh, technical process with the recording? Did you guys try to do as much live off the floor as you could or? Did you kind of do it all in pieces? 
Well, so really it would have to be section by section. So it would start with Sid, the drummer, Sid Zanforlin, and Matt Lipscomb laying down the rhythm tracks, uh, drums and bass. And then uh, Gus would go in and do the guitars. Uh, Kasia would come in and do the accordion. We couldn't do live off the floor because there was just so many of us technically it would be difficult to mic a lot of the time the studios they were working in, except when we got to Moran Heights, the rooms were too small for us to all fit to, to do the tracks together. And just, so just sonically, we had more control when we would break up the, uh, the tracks and, and record them in these, in these different parts. Um, yeah. So that was also something that was, you know, that again, uh, if you, if you listen to a bootleg of a Morgenthaler show, uh, or we have, we are revolting, which, uh, which is, has some live tracks on there. That's, I think where you definitely are getting more of the synthesis of the entire thing happening all at once. But technically speaking for Shiva and for clown heaven and hell, we had to record, uh, separately. Now you and Gus, you know, trade vocals, you double each other up, you sing lead, he sings lead. How did you kind of, um, work out that dynamic together? The dynamic between me and Gus, as far as the vocal parts are concerned, really, I think it's it, it's always been the same since that since the the founding of the band and the reason why I was I was invited to join the band and join join up uh, for that first talent show. I was invited to join to do the selectors on my radio. It wasn't really about the fact that um, how can I put this? I knew that the band would be led by Gus as the major front person, I was kind of co-front person with him. And so when Matt was writing songs, a lot of the time they, I mean, oh, well, definitely I, I sang it. And I think Matt had the idea when he wrote it that I would sing it. But most of the time the songs were written with the idea that Gus would sing the lead. And then I would come in with parts uh, to complement his. Um, when I started writing uh, when I was in Morgenthaler, that's when I, that, I mean, I was singing my own songs. So that's where, you know, I was able to, uh, take more of the lead there, but otherwise, I mean, it's, you know, it has been a, it's, it's a collective, it's a collaboration and, um, we just try to find where we can be complementary to each other and build on each other's strengths. Actually, one more question about the recording of Shiva. Um, the track My Mother's Friends is a bit of an outlier on the record, all acoustic, a weird Satan skit at the top of it. Can you maybe uh, tell us about the origins of that tune? Yeah, so that's a song that was written by uh, Adam Berger, Bix, Bix in the band The Trumpet Player. And see, our moms are always really important. It's like we were teenagers when we started band and you know we practice in our parents basements and our our moms became you know they plus the name of the band me mom morgenthal our, our moms became important and so uh, adam came up with the song and uh he had written it about his mother's friends and then we just included all of our mom's friends <laughs> you know satan has always been you know, it's like the fight of good and evil. Uh, that's a Morgenthaler thing of this epic, epic themes, epic superhero themes or these kinds of crazy cartoon ways that we go. And so, you know, Satan's always got a, a uh, can always have a place in the Morgenthaler story. But yeah, it was, 
it's really for the love of the moms and 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 had to do with our name so now at this point are you guys touring extensively are you guys going all the way across canada to vancouver and if so what was that like traveling with such a big uh, contingent it was really really hard well so we'd start out with gigs like you know, a couple hours away, if it was playing in Ottawa or in Hull or, or playing, um, playing in Sherbrooke and Quebec and small towns in Quebec, Trois-Rivières and that kind of thing, uh, in Quebec City. So our drives were, you know, we'd go like drive for the day, play the gig and sometimes just come back that same night. Right. So that's how it started. And we, eventually started to link these gigs together into weekends and so it was an organic kind of thing as our groundswell I guess was our popularity was growing locally that's how it kind of happened then the parameter or of where we would be playing like getting up to Toronto and past Toronto like to you know, Sudbury and then Thunder Bay and then this, this crazy drive like up to Thunder Bay and then Thunder Bay to Winnipeg and all of that, like going all the way out through Saskatchewan and, and Alberta and out to Vancouver. Like that was really, really uh, that that first tour was really tough. I think that also we managed to do that in 89, 90, 90. And well, what I could say is we had a white van and it had no seats in the back. We took my parents' old king size mattress and laid it in the back of the van and we rode across the country back, like back and forth for three weeks, packed like sardines, like head to toe uh, across that mattress in, in that van. It was insane. It was like, I mean, like, you know, you do that once and then you just say, okay, I'm never doing that again. Right? Like, <laughs> but yeah, we all got to know each other really well. Let's put it that way. <laughs> were you guys just doing um, solo shows or were you touring with another band or playing with other bands in certain cities? We, yeah. We, so we were either invited, but the club would have a uh, bill and we'd play uh, either opening or opening for a band or uh, them. Like it would be like kind of even a double bill kind of thing. But a lot of the time, because we were just, it was difficult to have us open because even just in terms of like stage plot, you know, and you think you're playing like a small, small club. Yeah, and the, and the headlining band has all their gear on, and you're supposed to play in front of the headlining band, and like we're like eight people. Mm -hmm. it, it could it was it was kind of crazy when that when that when we were the opening act. So um, very quickly we became the headlining act. Plus, uh, a lot of the time we just take over, you know. <laughs> we played, yeah, that's a magic so. hard act to follow. I think so. It's... Yeah, yeah. So let's see. Um, I do remember playing a lot of gigs with, well, especially when we got out to the West Coast, like Nardwar would organize a lot of the gigs we would play. Uh, we play a lot with Bob's Your Uncle. That was one band we played a lot with. Um, the Smugglers was another band we played a lot with. Um, I mean, I know we, we also played with Crash Test Dummies at one point. Um, I remember Bare Naked Ladies wanted to open for us, and we were like, Bare Naked Ladies, what a stupid name. We don't want to play with that band. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> but yeah, and we were so cool, much cooler than them anyway. That's what we thought. <laughs> Actually, right now I'm reading the book that Grant Lawrence released based upon his Smuggler's Tour diaries, and uh, 
Within that book is a handbill of a show with the Smugglers, Fastbacks, yourself, and Fugazi. Now that sounds like a wild time. Any memories of that gig? Yes, I do. Yeah. Well, yeah. So well, Fugazi, I mean, those guys they kept to themselves, and that was not, that was a Nardwar gig. So, but that I remember that gig specifically. Uh, because uh, Pete McGoldrick, who was our sound guy, uh, tour manager, and main van driver, uh, when we got to that gig, we were really tired. We were really hungry, and the rider said that we were supposed to be provided food. Well, Nardwar had grapes and chips, and I just remember Pete, like, and Pete's like, a little guy and Nardware is obviously, you know, you know, Nardware is such a character and he's just taller than Pete, but Pete's just like in his face yelling up at him. I can't believe we go, we can't drove all the way over here and you've got chips and grapes for the rider for eight people, you know? And I was like, come on, you know, I mean, you know, just, it's just a gig. It's just going to go, come on, you know, Nardware. So I would, I remember that. Yeah. And a lot of skate punks too. Tons and tons of skate punks. That was a really fun gig. I'll never forget that one. Yeah. Now you could only tour across Canada so many times without going nuts. Um, at what point did you try branching out to the States or Europe and how did that work out for you guys? So, well, the, so cost was always an issue for us getting, anywhere so europe was going to be a stretch um as far as the states were concerned well this is like as soon as we get anywhere close to the american border on tour it was you know what we can just we can be there in two hours we can be in seattle in two hours or vancouver i remember oh let's go to san francisco what are you talking about let's not what do you what do you want to drive to san francisco we don't have any money oh come on let's just ask our manager to wire us some cash we can get down there we can do this we can be down there in 10 hours what's our chance let's do it now We'll wake up again. We'll find something. We'll busk on the street. And, you know, that like, yeah. So that was our way of getting it. <laughs> it's just, again, a lot of times spur of the moment. Let's just do these crazy things. And um, but no, we did have some organized outings to the <laughs> States. We did play in 1990. We did play Earth Day at the Greek Theater in Berkeley, uh, California. And that was a really fun gig. Uh, no Doubt was on that bill. Uh, Skanking Pickle was on that bill. Love that name. <laughs> Madness was on that bill. Mighty Mighty Boss Town. Mighty Mighty Boss Tones was on that bill. Uh, Special Beat was on that bill, too. So Ranking Roger and Dave Wakeling were there. And that was huh. really cool. Yeah. And um, and then another. Uh, then we also played New York uh, quite a few times too. I mean, we played CBGBs. I remember that gig because the place definitely had an unforgettable uh, stench to it. But <laughs> I was like, that's I'll never forget that. I think that's everybody knows that. Who'd been to CBGBs, they know that, uh, the stench and CBGBs. So it's a signature thing. Um, but yeah, uh, no, played CMJ in New York. Um, so yeah, I mean we. We started to build a following definitely in the north, in the northeast, really, uh, of the state. So, but that was later on towards Shiva. That took some time to get to that point. Now, I was actually going to ask you this earlier, but it's um, slipped my mind. Um, you're the first uh, member of a Quebec band I've had on the podcast. And I'm sure you've gotten this question uh, many, many times. But uh, when you guys first start out, is there a question about what language to sing in or how much to sing in a certain language or to sing in both languages? Are those questions kind of something that uh, you guys kind of address? This is actually something that had 
always been some uh, a topic that had brought been brought up brought up to us, not one that we brought up, mm-hmm. and we had to respond to the <laughs> fact that we're multi ethnic, multilingual immigrant kids, most of us, you know, like first generation Canadian. And, uh, you know, Gus is Argentinian and Italian. I'm Jamaican and Polish, Ukrainian. Uh, yeah. So, you know, and the fact that we're from Montreal, it's a bilingual place. I mean, yeah, sure. It's maybe mainly Francophone, but the Anglophone culture has always persistently been there. And uh, we met in a Anglophone English speaking college living in a French speaking environment. So everything that we did was just pretty much a product of who we were. And but we did get approached with the question that you just asked me a lot. And uh, all we could do, say, like, you know, people say, well, what's your image and how do you fit? And, you know, who what's your audience and who are you trying to address? And we were always trying to address everyone. And we knew that we were coming from a place of, you know, peace and love, one love, jaw love and crazy fun and, you know, let's all get along and anti-racism and, you know, fight the man and fight the power and all that and, you know, uh, organized anarchy. And so that kind of kaleidoscopic, all that range of qualities that we have and just the fact of our mixed ethnicities and origins and the context that we grew up in is just all reflected in how the band came out. And so, you know, we never felt like we had to, sometimes we felt like we had to defend that because people would want to say, oh, well, this isn't marketable or we can't figure out what you are. And we were like, well, that's, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, you're not, <laughs> that's fine with us. You know, uh, we just gotta be, we've, we've, we, we are all of these things. Speaking of marketing, um, what was your guys' approach to music videos? Were you able to kind of explore some ideas you might not have been able to explore on stage? And was it you guys who came up with the treatments or did you have, uh, directors bring ideas to you? So what we did, we didn't do, we didn't do a lot of videos for your friend. I, that was like such a shoestring budget. I mean, I think it was less than a thousand dollars that we had to do that. And it was, I think it was a friend of, uh, friend of Gus and Matt's that came up with the, this, uh, plot of this girl and this guy and her little, uh, uh, revenge on him, this black and white video that we shot in one day. But, then when we got to Oh Well, that the video for Oh Well, that was James DeSalvio from Brand Van 3000 at the time. I don't, yeah, I don't think he had Brand Van even at the time. James was, yeah, James was uh, like a club kid. His dad uh, owned this club DeSalvio's in the late 80s, early 90s, which was like the jet set model place to be, right? So all the A-listers coming through town would go and party uh, until the wee hours at DeSalvio's. And so uh, James was involved in DJing and there, and uh, he was also doing some videos, really working with another, known known to be working with another uh, big artist at the time, Quebec artist named Jean Lelou, and uh, really fantastic, fantastic uh, uh, artist. And so then James approached us about directing a video and, 
uh, that's where we decided, yeah, we'd go with him. And that was really like the first big, um, and I think really the only one that we did that was on this big, large video budget scale. Uh, we got a grant to do it from lovely old Factor. Nice. God bless Factor. And, uh, yeah, that, that was, that was, uh, that, that was our big visual video splash. I mean, I'd say if as far as visuals are concerned though, where we've always been strong. And I mean, that's up until like, you know, Morgan, Morgan Teller spirit never dies. And again, you know, we're still in touch and still talking about working on, on some things. Our visual strength is really in our T-shirts and our posters. Our merch was super, super strong. And that was mainly the domain of John Jordan, the sax player in the band, who's a really fantastic visual artist and, uh, you know, hand-drawn sketches and cartoony kind of crazy things. And we'd invite our friends. um, You know, my boyfriend at the time did a really really great T-shirt design for us. And our T-shirts became collectibles. So, uh, and I think they still are for any of them. <laughs> if you could still find one out there. I know I kept all of mine because, you know, they're really, they're, we, we always paid very, very close attention to our merch. And we were really known for that. Now, once you had a couple of, couple of videos in the can, what was your relationship with uh, Music Plus and uh, Much Music during that time? Um, and maybe Canadian media as a whole, was there any difference between... Uh... So that was that's a two there's two parts to that story there's the English Canada part and then there's the French Canada part. So we are I mean you could say we're quintessentially a Montreal band and Music Plus it was based in Montreal is based in Montreal so they were right there with us from the beginning uh when the Your Friend video came out they were playing it um they were they really backed us up. They were like proud to to have to represent us too on that station. Um, you know, considering that the station was catering to a francophone crowd in the province of Quebec and across Canada to the francophone community of Canada and mainland Quebec. And so that meant mainly francophone artists and uh, and of course, you know, then the most the popular American or British step of the day. So as a Canadian, uh, as an Eng- as a Quebec artist singing in English, we were really happy to have, uh, at least for that video, that for the videos that we did put out, we were really happy to have their support. And we were invited to do a uh, live performance in their studios a couple of times. And uh, we were regularly invited to come on and do quick interviews or a, an acoustic performance. They were su- super supportive. When we got to... Toronto, that's where, and much music, it's a different situation because the machine is, you know, the English, the, the Canadian music industry machine on the, in the, from, in the Toronto side on westward is such a different, um, a different animal. And I'd even say like out in the maritime provinces with Sloan at the time and that, like that was like, they had their own thing going on out there in Halifax. So, you know, it's, it's a different story. Um, it's uh it's complicated on the English Canada side. We never were I don't think we were as much understood. I think uh, the fact that we sang in all these different languages and uh was more easily acceptable in in Quebec and and in and in English Canada, you know, it's mainly English. So uh and we'd sing in Spanish too, right? So uh it's it was 
the embrace was different. It was still, we still did great, uh, you know, playing sold out shows, the Commodore in Vancouver or at the Spectrum in Winnipeg or, you know, uh, like, or Edgefest and in Toronto, like all these really great things that we did, but it wasn't quite the same. I mean, even still now, the love that we still are getting online is from mainly from Quebec based fans. So I think that just kind of tells you, um, you know, where the imprint and the impact it was that, that we had, where that really resonated. I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, I just want to be a friend. stay with Morgenthaler the the entire run or did you uh, split off from them at some point because I know you had the Mud Girl project that came shortly after was that something that was always in the back of your mind 
Mud Girl wasn't always in the back of my mind, no. In fact, I didn't really have any thoughts about leaving Morgenthaler. Uh, I, I think it was about, it started with the band in, in 88 as a founding member. And um, it was around 92, 90, around 92, uh, 93, it was five years in that I I started to think, I don't know that there's enough room for my creative growth in an eight member band. And, uh, you know, I wanted, I'm writing more, I want to do more. And, uh, Gus is known as the front person of the band. And I don't know that there's just enough room for me to fully express, you know, like the, the band chemistry and the image and what we do is what we do. If I want to do more than that, I think I have to move on from here. And so that's really where it started. I, I was, that was just a natural thought process that, that came after a few years of being in the band. Um, I want to say I would have liked to continue if uh, I could have been more creatively expressive within that collective, but it just wasn't like, that just wasn't the place for that. And so that's, uh, so I decided to leave and the drummer Sid Zanferlin also decided to leave at the same time as me. And uh, the band continued on uh, beyond that uh, for a couple of more years. And then there was an odd, uh, then Gus and, and, and Adam had their offshoot Smitty's, which did quite well as well. Um, and Gus is now, of course, a, he's a very well-established uh, record producer uh, out of New York. And he works with a lot of very well-known Canadian acts and American acts. Um, but for me at the time, I just, it was just a natural, my, my decision to leave was a natural outgrowth of my writing more and just wanting to explore my creative voice more. So that, that's why I left. And I mean, I just remember, you know, leaving and kind of having my heart was, my heart was sinking, but at the same time, I knew that I was giving myself a chance to see what I could do. And so I kind of went into hibernation for a uh, few weeks and I bought a four track machine at the mm -hmm. time, four track tape machine, yes. Tascam, and I started writing songs uh, at home. And so I left the band and I, and I went into hibernation. I started writing songs at home over a bunch of weeks and just to see what I would come up with and, uh, working arrangements and working with a small drum machine and really like it was pure, like really just trying to learn how to record and get all the sounds that I had in my head out. This is the first time that I had been out of the band and I, it was up to me to really convey everything that I had, that I was, uh, that I, I was imagining hearing uh, myself without any assistance and I'm a manual reader, like, you know, I'll buy a, an appliance or a new piece of equipment and I'll read the manual front to back. <laughs> and so I, you know, I was really learning, getting deep into, I love, I like, I love electronic circuitry and all those kinds of things. So I was really kind of getting deep into how all these machines worked and what I could do with this four track, what I could do with the drum machine, how I could make these effects work, etc. And with some really basic equipment, I made, um, it was like four dem four, four, four song demo. And this day was on that. And I sent it to just a few local people that 
you know, had worked with Morgan Taller and, and just to kind of get some feedback and like, wow, it was super strong. And I was really surprised. And that's when I knew that, okay, I think I really have a shot at like doing something here on my own. This isn't just a pipe dream anymore. Like these people are just as engaged they want to get engaged on what I'm doing as much as they wanted to get engaged in what Morgenthaler was doing. Like there's no, there's no two steps back to go three steps forward. Like I'm just going like the path is open. I can go forward. And uh, that was uh, pretty revelatory to me. And, and it just, it totally, it totally boosted my confidence as a, as a new solo artist leaving the band after, you know, being surrounded with eight people for five years. Here I am on my own. And this day really does, the lyrics to that song are all about that period of leaving Morgenthaler and breaking out on my own. So that song still really brings me back exactly to that moment. And it's, I love it. It still has that freshness to me about, you know, carving out your own path.
Did you want to stay in Montreal to start your solo career? Did you want to move someplace like Toronto, Vancouver and try something different? Well, so what happened after I left Morgan Taller when I was hibernating and writing those songs, um, it really was at a point where I was able to, uh, you know, they're ta- they're, everyone has t- certain times in their life, these points where something ends and it's the beginning of something new. And it's like, well, the opportunity's there to relocate, the opportunity's there to, you know, redo your whole life, change your career, whatever, you know, find a new love. And actually that's also what happened at that point. So I'd done these demos and they were getting really great feedback. I was getting really great feedback on them from people in the industry and friends that I trusted. And I'd fallen in love with this band's record, uh, The Odds, Bedbugs. I was totally crazy about that album. And I knew that they were coming through town to play. I wanted actually, I was thinking, oh, it'd be so great if I could talk to the band and see if I could get in touch with the guy who produced their record because I love the sound of their record and I would love to have a record that sounds like that. (laughs) And so the odds were coming through Montreal uh, playing Cafe Campus and I decided to go down and, you know, catch up with the band after their set. And actually, I think I went down for sound. I knew around when soundcheck would be. Soundcheck's generally like somewhere between like four and seven o'clock. There's always someone in the band that's in the club uh, around that point, right? Loading in or setting up or whatever. So um, I went down at soundcheck and I, you know, I got into the club and, and of course they're setting up and I said, I'd like to speak to one of the guys in the band. And I think it was um, uh, their sound guy that, um, that 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 I approached and he says oh they'll be they'll be here later I'll let them know that you want to talk to them so anyway so the, so already the introduction was kind of already kind of preset there so I came back later for their gig and uh after the gig uh they played a great set and it was so you know it's just they're such a great but they're such a great band um I went up to speak to Stephen Drake and uh so he and I had a chat and I told him, you know, that I have this demo and I love the sound of the album and I'd really love to work with the guys that they've worked with on their album and I'll send you, you know, and here's my tape and let me know what you think. And so this is where this phone, this, this relationship started with Steven because then he was, of course, on the road and called me back a couple of days later and said it was really great and said, well, you know, you don't have to work with the guy we worked with. I mean, I can make your record sound like that. <laughs> so, okay, okay. All right, cool. And so we started chatting more about the music and then it started to become this, we hit it off over the phone. And so we ended up having these long conversations and then we realized we were falling in love with each other and the phone conversations would go on for hours. And then the phone bills were getting insane <laughs> at this point. And uh, I, meanwhile, like I'd applied for grant money and I'd gotten it and it was look, and this is actually from the Quebec, uh, Quebec uh, grants uh, system, which is related to factor and everything was looking really great for me in Quebec to get started on my solo career there. But I was falling in love with a guy who lived in Vancouver and we were having these crazy phone bills. And I was like, you know what? I got to get out of here. I got to go be with my guy. So I literally like picked up and ran out of, I just took off across uh, the country and landed in Vancouver uh, living with Steven. 
And so that was really where, yeah, that's, that's where the basis of mud girl really took hold. And that's where I became, I think that's was my transition to really becoming part of the Canadian music, Canadian rock scene in a larger sense and not so much the Quebec music scene at that point. Can you maybe compare and contrast the two different music scenes, the one in Montreal and the one in Vancouver? Well, I'd say that living in Vancouver, I mean, I think that, you know, if you if you live in Vancouver, if you're living on the West Coast and uh, like west of the Rockies, definitely you don't have much of a connect. There's not much of a connection of what's going on in Quebec, like the just the culturally and just in terms of the zeitgeist of what's going on in the city in Vancouver. It's like a totally different vibe. It's, it's you know, Vancouver is more related to what's going on, let's say, on the rest of the West Coast of uh, just North America than it is uh, related to even what might be going on in Toronto. I mean, yeah, sure, there's the Vancouver-Toronto connection, but uh, definitely not uh, what's going on in Quebec. So, I mean, that that way, it was a really jarring uh, shift for me. I really felt like a fish out of water because, like, Vancouver, and that seems not at all like the Quebec scene. I really liked it. I mean, it's it had much more of a... Um, let's say an American dynamism to it than, uh, than even I'd say Toronto has in the West coast there being out on the West coast. It's yeah. It's like the whole West of the Rockies kind of thing. I mean, uh, you know, looking back at it, it was such a rich scene at the time because there was, uh, the odds, there was, uh, limb lifter age of electric. There was, uh, Bob's your uncle or Cub or Nico case or Biff naked, right. Or Kenny star. Like there's so many artists at that point. And I don't think I realized how much of a, how dense it was and how rich it was. And it was really pumping. So there was always something going on and, um, it was a small scene, but a really, it was a really tight scene too. Uh, I mean, I, I, I look back on those, on those days really, really fondly. Uh, and they're completely different from the days of Morgenthaler and, and Quebec because again, there's that cultural shift between English Canada and, and French Canada. And that's just, that's just what it is. Um, but I will say as far as like Toronto, Vancouver, I would even say like there, like the bands, if you were in Toronto or if you're in Vancouver, like we were always able to in Vancouver, like drive our own thing. And Toronto felt very, very far away. And we knew that it was felt like Toronto was really where like the big guys were like the head honchos were. And here we were in Vancouver and we got like this cottage industry going on. I think it's also because of like the Hollywood North thing and a lot of productions like TV productions, like the X-Files was really big shooting in Vancouver at that point. There was a lot of travel and traffic between LA and Vancouver. And so it would be more natural for a band in Can in Vancouver to think about like crossing the border that way, even than to like get over to Toronto. Uh, you know, I, I think, it, or the consciousness of it would just be about the same really. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's just totally different experience. And it's looking back at it, I can really say that as a Canadian artist, I most definitely have had a very, uh, very multicultural experience as a Canadian artist too. So once you're out in Vancouver and you're working towards that first solo record, what kind of internal conversations are you having with yourself or regarding what to call it? I mean, are you floating the Kim Bingham project, Kim Bingham, an alias? Can you maybe uh, walk through that for us? I knew that when I left Morgenthaler and doing my own thing, I just, 
I'd never thought at that time, I didn't think my name was cool. And I didn't think that my name, yeah, you know, Kim Bing, I didn't think it was a name that would call people to me. Like, I didn't think it like, it's not like a gang building name. And so I thought I got to have a band name. I'm going to have like a, my own gang and it's going to be this band and that's, that's it. So, um, I had written a short story about a little girl made of mud and, uh, I just thought, you know, I, I think I, I want to call it this. I want to develop this moniker, take this on and have the project be called that. And, you know, I'm mud girl. The project's called mud girl. The band is called mud girl. And so, uh, it, it was a, it was a way for me to transition into being a solo artist, uh, without completely exposing myself as I did, you know, I, I hid behind, I was a, it was a bit of a, a shade. Like I was able to kind of hide behind that. Um, and still lead the project. So uh, that that was the thinking behind taking on that name. So after you have the name and you have the demos, um, what's the next step? Are, are record labels interested? Are you looking at releasing it independently? After what I'd done those uh, demos and they started to get out and then I got them to Steven and he uh, was, uh, you know, the odds were signed, right? Uh, major label band. And so uh, he was the one that got me connected to people in Toronto at the major labels that were really interested. And uh, I also signed with EMI Music Publishing at the time. Barb Seaton and Mike McCarty were super supportive of me and major believers in my music and my career. And, uh, at that point, um, EMI and Warner were both labels were both really interested in signing me. And I ended up having a development deal with EMI. And that really was the foundation of the budget to do first book, the mud girl EP, um, with, uh, Steven in Vancouver. And what was it with, I had Glenn Kruger on drums and Luke Truman on lead guitar and, uh, Russell Les on bass. And yeah, that, 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 that was really when the heat started, the major label heat started around mud girl was, was, uh, really it started through Steven just shopping the, the demo for me because he wanted to, to work with me and, uh, he had the connections to, to make things happen. And so that's, that's where it all, it all began. Now, you said earlier that uh, marketing and T-shirts and promotion was really a strength of Morgenthaler. Were you able to parlay any of that into Mud Girl? And did you have a vision of that project that you were able to see through, through marketing uh, images and videos and whatnot? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Well, there's the figure of the figure of the Mud Girl is a little girl made of mud that I had drawn in brown wax crayon. And that's still uh, the main image of the mud girl that I, I have today. Um, other than that, you know, other than that, not really, I can't say that I had as much of a strong visual, uh, idea behind mud girl, um, as much as with Morgenthaler, you know, that, that definitely was something that John Jordan did bring to that band. And I didn't have the same thing going with me. And then it was also the fact that it is a female led project. Yes, there's this figure, this icon of this hand-drawn little girl, but here's this female singer here. Well, let's make her, you know, the avatar of it. And so that did start to become 
part of the visual imagery for Mud Girl was a cartoon version of me. And um, at a certain point after uh, the first book EP was released, I got picked up by network management with Terry McBride and Pierre Tremblay and their graphic department started to you know, work, work out um, graphics where I became the avatar uh, for uh, the t-shirt design. And so there was more of a strong visual image coming out at that point. I could say that uh, it wasn't something that I was super conscious or, or focused on. I, I think I was still getting my legs up under me as a solo artist through the whole Mud Girl experience. And I was really surprised and buoyed at the success that Mud Girl was having. I totally it took me by surprise. I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> expecting it. And, um, yeah, I think I was building my confidence as a, as a solo artist through that whole, whole thing. So I was more than happy to have other people and professionals come in and say, well, well let's try this and let's try that. And, and uh, yeah, it was fun in that way. Was there any new challenges now being in a, in a strictly female led band, as opposed to something like Morgan Tarler, which had both you and Gus as the front people? I mean, you know, challenges uh, regarding radio and uh, things of that nature. There's always a, you, so, you know, there's a few things uh, there. So as far as being a, a female artist or a female led project. OK, well, I could say from the radio perspective, uh, working with radio promoters such as um, the a sweet recently departed Bobby Gale, uh, who's also a big champion of mine and such a pleasure to work with. Uh, you know, he'd say to me, we're getting the song play, but, you know, they've got quotas and they don't play as many female artists as they play male artists. So there was always that. I think that I don't know how much that has changed. I think that's changed quite a bit. At least it depends on the radio formats. Also, I'm fortunate to be female uh, act that, you know, as a songwriter and as a pop rock act that my stuff did appeal to radio. And I can't say that that's necessarily the case for all uh, all acts. I just I just feel as an independent act coming from Morgenthaler, where we weren't. It was really hard to place us on radio. We didn't necessarily fit into any format. We were all over the map, really. That I would write songs that not, I just naturally write songs that were radio friendly. I felt really fortunate in that way. But then, of course, then it was again. Well, uh, the you know either uh, do you have, the songs and most of the songs I wrote were in English, of course, for Mud Girl. So that was good for radio play as opposed to in Quebec. Maybe I'd get less radio play, even though I was better known there. And then it was the female thing. As far as being a female that a female artist, yeah, again, you know, you're you're part of a minority uh, uh, as a female artist uh, in rock, and at that time also. Although there were a lot of female artists at that time around Mud Girl because it was the grunge era and there was a right girl era. And so there was Hole and, you know, L7 and Bikini Kill and and Blue Salt. And uh, so uh, all of them. I also got invited to play on Lilith Fair and uh, because I was with Network and, you know, Terry McBride wanted to have me out in the U.S., um, uh, out you know, with the major labels in the States uh, uh, coming courting. And so being on that tour with a whole female bill was, uh, was really a fantastic experience. I just think as a female artist, though, I would say, and I think this is also having been in Morgenthaler and the fact that, you know, we are all such strong personalities in that band that if you had an opinion, you really needed to, again, like argue it, argue it to the death. 
uh, that when I finally had my own project, I was, I've always been the boss and, but the boss in a, in a really fun way. And, um, so I'm able to like draw out those lines for the guys in the band or the women in the band and the people that come and work with me and uh, keep things organized and on track that way. And I, and, uh, you know, they respect that I've always had band members that have respected the authority that I take in the leadership of my project and, and the respect that I show them too. So it makes things fun and always transparent, right? There's no funny business going on. Everyone's kind of knows what the deal is and what they're bringing to the table. And, um, I work in that way. So, uh, as a female artist, I think that that's something having worked with musicians from all over the world, uh, at, well, at least from Europe and in North America, uh, I would say, um, I think you definitely need to lead your project and be strong about that. So uh, that's something that as a female artist, I, 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 I was very conscious of and I brought to the project right away with my girl. Actually, before we move on, can you talk a little bit more about Lilith Fair and what was it like to kind of be part of that amazing lineup? So, yeah, when I was uh, picked up with by network management, that was at the time Sarah McLaughlin was really, really getting big. And she was huge in Canada, and then she was breaking massively huge in the States. And so she had this concept of this all-female uh, um, festival, music festival, uh, touring music festival, and which was Lilith Fair. And so I... I was invited to be part of the second edition of it. I think it ran, it was the second year that I was on that, uh, that, uh, they put me on the bill for about a handful of shows down the West coast of the States. And, uh, it's like from Seattle through to, uh, LA. And, uh, that was an amazing experience. So Sarah obviously headlined the shows and it was kind of a revolving, cast of uh, re revolving cast of artists that were on the different shows through the entire tour because the tour went through all, all through the States and Canada as well. So I was just on one part of it and, um, and then it would, you know, other artists would overlap, etc. My, on my tour, my part of the tour, uh, it was Tracy Chapman, Cassandra Wilson, Jewel, Paula Cole, Suzanne Vega, Kinney was on some gigs. Uh, uh, yeah. And, um, uh, I played, there were like several stages. There was like an A stage, which was a huge, big mega headliner stage, the B stage for us up and coming youngins. And then there was a, a smaller stage as well for the local artists, local female artists in the city that we'd be stopping in and they'd play there. So I was on the B stage and I just remember, you know, looking side stage and there'd be Paula Cole or there'd be Cassandra Wilson or there'd be Jewel checking, checking out my set. And, uh, even that, like that tour was just so different because it was a female organized tour and a female led tour. So different than, another tour that I'd done, which was the I Mother Earth and Moist Arena tour. And that tour was like, oh, wait, it was just, it was guys. So the classic kind of thing that the female tour has got like masseuse, if you need a massage and the food is all really healthy. And, you know, they're asking how you're feeling and do you need anything? And really taking the self-care part was fantastic. The catering was amazing. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, definite, definite, different vibe on a female tour. 
Let's talk a little bit more about that uh, moist and I Mother Earth tour. That's a big one. How did that come to be? And, you know, what was it like opening for those two giants? Let's see. I just, I'd released the Mud Girl EP and uh, This Day come out adjusted. Like there were, you know, there, it was the, a, a contact also done the video for that. Like there, there was stuff happening around the EP and uh, much music was being really supportive of that. And so, and, you know, the Canadian music industry was watching what I was doing. I mean, I'm just like this, you know, new girl on the block and, you know, who is she and all of that. And so when network picked me up to manage me, I think they were also handling moist at that point as well. And I just remember I was washing dishes at our, at mine Stevens place and the phone rang and uh, I had the rubber gloves on. <laughs> I just remember Liz and Pierre Tromley saying, you know, um, I just want to let you know that uh, there's a tour that Moist and I Mother Earth are doing. And you you know, there were many bands that were proposed to do it and uh, major label bands, too. Right. And here I am, this little Lindy. And they said, well, we'd really like Mud Girl to open the tour. And I was just floored. I, I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I, I mean, uh, it was such a, to me, that was like a, a really crowning moment for me. And it still is for me, for my career, just to know that I was picked. I had no warning, no news of that at all, that I just kind of out of the blue got this call that I'd been chosen after all these bands and managers were jockeying to have their acts on and labels were jockeying for that slot. It was a half hour slot opening for I Mother Earth and Moist on this, uh, I think it was like a 12 day, a small stadium, small arena tour across the country. And uh, first experience for me on my own tour bus with my band, we we got a, a tour bus sponsored by Molson Export. <laughs> and yeah, it was really, it was kind of, it was a big league. It was like little league me and my guys in a big league situation. It was awesome. I mean, I'll never forget that. Um, the thing is that it felt so natural. I think after doing those shows with Morgenthaler where we, we would sell out, you know, the Commodore, sell out, you know, 3,000 seat, 3,000 capacity places or 1,000 capacity places for a couple of nights or just pack in clubs. If it's like call the office in London, like pack it out for a couple of nights, whatever it was. Like I was used to playing these like crowds and maybe faceless crowds where you couldn't really see to the back of the room. And so playing these small stadiums and arenas, which were still, you know, it's like a lot of people there. I mean, it was really, it was exhilarating and it felt like, I know how to do this. I can do this. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was really proud of that. Uh, that really felt like a major accomplishment to me in my career. Now, despite all the successes of Mud Girl, you only made one record under that moniker. What kind of uh, led you to decide to move on from Mud Girl? That's, that has to do with my, art, my evolution as a solo artist and my working to come out of my own shell. And um, so I, I think I got tired of people calling me Mud Girl. And I was like, you know, I want to have my own name on the project now. Right. I mean, I just, I mean, Kurt Dahl from um, Age of Electric and Limelight, you'd see me go, hi, Mud Girl. I mean, I ran into Nico Case a couple of years ago in Dallas. She's like, hi, Mud Girl. So, you know, it just stuck. <laughs> but uh, I, I decided for myself, I, I needed to 
really as more more assume the position that okay this is my project i'm fronting it and so i was still like oh the kim kim bingham no the kim bingham band no let's do the kim band okay kim band so i went i so that was that's that was just a, a reflection of my of my evolution that i decided to change the name from mud girl to the kim band and uh and and then yeah and then girlology came out of that
now looking back, could you feel that um, you were able to capitalize on the success of Mud Girl with the Kim Band, or did you kind of feel like you were starting from scratch again? There was definitely a starting from scratch thing. I mean, Mud Girl, well, not starting from scratch, but it definitely was like a step backward to move forward again. And, um, you know, so, so I guess the moral of the story is choose your band name carefully from the beginning, <laughs> right? Um, but, uh, you know, I was lucky that uh, with Girlology, the album that, that I put out under the Kim Band, uh, what a drag this first single off of that was another success for me at radio and at much music. So, uh, in that way, it, I, I kind of felt like, uh, I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd still, I still, I still, I still had a ways to go and I still was like on my right path and I was going to defend my artistic evolution and, you know, it would just be a matter of, of, uh, getting out there and promoting it and letting people know that this is who I am now. Now, this brings us to 99, 2000. At this point, have you noticed, you know, a change in the music the music industry, say, from the beginning of the decade now to the end? Yeah, I definitely saw changes from the beginning of the decade to the end. And I'd say a lot of it has to do with analog, analog to digital. It has to do with, like, we were working on two, you know, we were working reel-to-reel two-inch tape at the beginning of the 90s and then at the end you know that's when uh you know you could it's like pro tools was just starting out or whatever the uh, digital software were was at that point at the end of the at the end of the at the end of the decade the other thing also is i remember very very distinctly um towards the end of the decade uh jogging in one early morning in um around commercial drive in vancouver where me and steven were living in I had my headphones on and I was listening to the radio and it was a radio report about how uh, Napster was putting out stock shares and how Alanis Morissette had bought a bunch of stock shares and become a a multimillionaire overnight for buying these stock shares in Napster. (laughs) Yeah, and it was all so basically talking about like the digital download era and the beginning of, of, of downloading and music piracy. And, you know, that was really, I'd say, in terms of my personal experience as a musical artist, going from Morgenthaler to Mudgirl and Mudgirl to the Kim Band, between Mudgirl and the Kim Band, the Kim Band is really when digital kind of like the downloading really started. And Mudgirl was still when major labels were still like putting a lot of money behind uh, projects and all of that. And I just remember that promoting the Kim Ban record started to become really difficult because the digital downloading had started. And so it was the collapse of that traditional music industry. Uh, and that at that point, at the end of that decade, was exactly when David Usher came calling mm-hmm. and asked for me to join his band on tour. And I thought, this is a great opportunity for me. I get to play with a great artist and and great people and live on the road and earn a decent living and I can also you know let people know about my music too and just have this kind of like learn from working with an artist that's better established bigger established than me and uh learn off of him that way and it was also kind of like a safety net for me as an independent artist because I knew that I could see that uh the the structure of the music industry that had existed previously in the decade was, was going away. Now we're going to wrap this up soon, but uh, before we do, 
earlier, you kind of mentioned that there's going to be some new music, both from yourself and from Morgenthaler. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about that and uh, what fans can expect in the, in the uh, near future? Well, I can tell you what we're doing very shortly. Um, so as far as Morgenthaler is concerned, uh, there we've been invited to participate in an anti-racism project uh, that is online on September 12th. Paul Carniello is a Montreal artist, musical artist, great, uh, great uh, musician and songwriter who is one of the people at the helm of uh, this event. And we are putting together a cover song that speaks of racism, one that we're known for. I won't say anymore because I'm not going to spoil <laughs> any surprise. But if you tune into our Facebook, Morgenthaler, Me Mom and Morgenthaler Facebook page, uh, there'll be updates coming on that as we're as the project gets uh, further along. And uh, yeah, so it is an anti-racism project that we are part of online project on September 12th. Um, so that's one thing for Morgenthaler. On my end, I've been producing uh, singles uh, for, let's say, starting with the one I put out last year called Beppe Green, which is an Italian English single because I have a love affair with Italy and I also speak Italian. So, of course, why not sing and write in all the languages, right? Not just uh, French or English. So I have this rhythm of um, producing a new song and doing a video for it and and just putting it out there. So uh, Beppe Green was the song I put out last summer and had no expectations for it, got a really great animated video done for it, and then it ended up on Bombshell Radio, which is an internet radio station on their top 100 songs of the year. It was number five. Their top 100, yeah, with Billie Eilish, I think, was number four. So I'm pretty like, oh, my gosh, okay. Yeah, so that's really cool. And I am very shortly releasing a new video that is a coronavirus lockdown project. It's a project that is born out of long distance collaboration with a video director in London, Julian White and myself. And so we put together this video that is, let's just say it's based off of existing social media filters. Uh, and so it's got a lot of a lot of free special effects in it with a little bit of a sci fi story. And uh, I'll just say you can do a lot with Instagram filters, a green screen and an astronaut Halloween costume. <laughs> That's what's involved. And I'm really excited. It's for a song off of my up album uh, where we, we decided to recycle uh, older content because I'm going to do a brand new single later on but this was just something like a kind of a creative project while covid was keeping us all inside so the song is sweet irene and it's off the up album and we're just we'll be releasing that probably in the net like i'm thinking it's going to come out in august excellent okay now final question i have an official playlist on apple and spotify of all 90s can rock songs now i'm going to ask you for a single from uh morgenthaler a single from mud girl and pick a deep, deep cut between the two. So how would you like to be represented on the playlist? Okay, so let's see. A Morgenthaler single? Uh, I'll, I mean, I'm going to choose Oh Well, because uh, first I sing it. Second of all, it's, it's, it's and second of all, and, but also it's an anti-racism song. And I think considering the time, the times right now, uh, that's, that's relevant. Deep cut, I'd say um, 
Oh God. Okay. The title is Planet of Planet of the Cockroaches. It's a really loud, obnoxious song. Well, yeah, it's a loud, obnoxious song, and it's just loud and obnoxious. So uh, um, <laughs> I don't know if it's ringing any bells. I think it's on. It's on uh, Should a Space Machine, and it's probably all of about a minute long, or but it's not very long. But uh, uh, that one would be my deep cut, and then um, and a single from Mud Girl. Uh, I like adjusted. Great choices. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's been interesting and funny and fascinating and all those kinds of things. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash ravedrool, become a patron, get access to deleted audio, get advanced notice of the guests, and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search Rave Drool, you can buy various goods with the Raven Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more Naughty's Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself with tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care. I'll never get to know you well.